constantly working without taking breaks? Do you find it hard to say no to people? Do you feel like you lack confidence and are more often talking negatively to yourself than positively? Do you feel like you've been lacking basic things like eating regular meals, exercise, or even taking a shower? If you've answered yes to any of these questions, then you are probably lacking self-compassion. And this is the podcast for you. But if you didn't say yes to any of those questions, congrats. But you'll still want to stick around to hear all about the ins and outs of self-compassion. Hi, everyone. I am Madeline Eisner Ryan, a fourth year psychology student at Mount Allison University. Today on This Is Fine, I will be talking all about Self-Compassion 101. You may be asking yourself, what even is self-compassion? Is it self-care? Is self-compassion self-indulgent? Self-compassion, as explained by researchers, is showing compassion to yourself in instances or situations when you feel inadequate, when you fail, or if you're having general suffering. Researchers also seem to agree that self-compassion has three important parts, self-kindness, common humanity, and mindfulness. Self-kindness involves being warm towards yourself when you're going through a tough time instead of criticizing yourself. You can think about it like how you would talk to a friend. If they came up to you and said, I'm so behind on my lectures and schoolwork this week, would you say, you are so disorganized and should drop out of university? No, of course not. But it is shocking how many people talk to themselves that way. Common humanity means realizing that failure and distress is a part of our shared human experiences. This means when we fall behind on our lectures and schoolwork, we restructure our thinking that everyone experiences these setbacks and it isn't just you. Mindfulness is a non-judgmental state of mind where we are in the present moment and observe things as they are by not suppressing or denying them. This could look like accepting the fact that we are behind on our work and thinking of what we can do to fix it. Of course, in a non-judgy way to ourselves so we can work through it. So is this the same as self-care? I'd imagine when you think about self-care, you think about those posts that 20-something-year-old Instagram influencers share on their stories like, take a bath, drink a glass of water, do a face mask. Although these things can be nice and good for you, there are other forms of self-care that also deserve to be addressed, like getting fresh air, going for a walk, or meditating. Meditating has been found to have tremendous health benefits, both physically and mentally. And of course, taking a break. Yes, a real break, like stopping homework for 20 minutes and doing something completely unrelated to the work you were just doing. Whether self-care and self-compassion are the same thing is yes and no. A definition of self-care that is commonly agreed on by researchers is the activities we do on a daily basis to help us look after ourselves, as well as trying to avoid problems or potential threats that may put us in a situation we don't want to be in. To clarify, self-care and self-compassion are not exactly the same thing. Self-care is treating yourself compassionately, but self-compassion is regarding yourself compassionately. It's the thinking versus doing distinction. Now that we know about the distinction between self-care and self-compassion, Let's dive into some history of where self-compassion came from. Self-compassion originated from Eastern philosophy, specifically from Buddhism. 
It was only introduced into psychological literature in 2003 by Kristen Neff. She created a self-report inventory to measure self-compassion called the Self-Compassion Scale. The scale is commonly used to measure how self-compassionate you are. It is composed of 26 questions and you rate each statement on a scale from one to five. The scale assesses different factors that reflect the positive and negative aspects of the three components of self-compassion, self-kindness, common humanity, and mindfulness. I'll give you a few examples so you can have a better understanding of the scale. An example of an item that measures a lack of self-kindness is, I'm disapproving and judgmental about my own flaws and inadequacies. An example of an item that measures a lack of mindfulness is, when I'm feeling down, I tend to obsess and fixate on everything that's wrong. And an example of an item that measures that you may have strong self-kindness is, I try to be loving towards myself when I'm feeling emotional pain. The results of this scale tell you your average overall self-compassion score. A score of 1 to 2.5 on the scale means your self-compassion is low, whereas a high score on self-compassion is 3.5 to 5. People who score high on the scale usually have lower levels of negative traits and have higher chances of longer life satisfaction, social connectedness, and subjective well-being. The research also shows that people who are self-compassionate are less likely to experience anxiety in stressful situations, and it can increase self-esteem. Neff also explains that self-compassionate people are more likely to take personal responsibility in a positive way for past mistakes than self-critics, which is a good thing. Self-compassionate people are seen to be able to persevere in times of hardships and heartaches. They are likely to try again, set new goals, and actually accomplish them. If you're interested in seeing how self-compassionate you are, just Google Kristen Neff's Self-Compassion Scale or find the link to it in the show notes for this podcast to find your results. Kristen Neff's website will also give you recommendations to increase your self-compassion, such as doing guided meditation, self-compassion exercises, journaling, and practicing positive self-talk. The example I gave before about thinking of self-kindness as how you would treat a friend is also a self-compassion exercise. The next time you are in a situation where you failed at something, made a big mistake, or said something you shouldn't have, think what you would say to your best friend in that situation. Would you tell them they're being stupid and are the worst? Or would you console them, tell them it's okay, and that it will get better? I don't know about you, but I'm more likely to react the second way than the first. And that is how you should treat yourself in those situations, with kindness and positive words. Why be so mean to yourself? Doing this exercise can be the first step in the right direction to being more self-compassionate. Another real-life example of this is about my friend, Maggie. Yes, that is her real name. And yes, she gave me permission to use it. Last week, we went on a walk on Sunday evening. Keep in mind, it is late November in 2020, and we are still in the midst of a global pandemic. So, we've been trying to get out of our apartments as much as we can lately. Anyway, we were walking, talking about the end of the semester coming up, grad school applications, and just about trying to balance everything in our lives while living in a COVID-19 world. 
She told me that throughout all of that week, she'd been doing schoolwork from about 8 a.m. until 10 p.m. or 11 p.m., taking minimal breaks, mind you, because she is such a hard worker. She did this all week, Monday to Friday. By the time Saturday came around, she was so burnt out and tired that she couldn't bring herself to do anything besides stay in her apartment all day and binge watch Grey's Anatomy. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with that, but the reason this happened is because as university students, we're fed these workaholic ideas and glorify pulling all-nighters and working non-stop because that means we must be good students. As we'll learn later in this podcast, this is not what makes you a good student. We need breaks in order to function as human beings, and having self-compassionate behaviors can help us with this. Overall, the research all points to the positive outcomes self-compassion can bring us, so why do so many of us lack it? A common misconception about self-compassion is that people fear that if they're too soft on themselves, then they won't get anything done and won't be able to push themselves to do anything. This is people confusing self-compassion with self-indulgence. Contrary to what some people might believe, self-compassion can actually increase your motivation to get things done. Kristen Neff gives an excellent example of this on her website, of how a mother may motivate her child. Let's say your son comes home with a failing exam grade, and she tells him, you're so stupid and lazy, you'll never amount to anything. Will that be an effective motivator? Of course not. It might make him work harder temporarily, but ultimately, it will just depress him and make him lose faith in himself. The mother would be more successful if she emotionally supported her child. I know this is disappointing for you, but everybody messes up sometimes. It's important to improve your grades if you want to go to college, so let's see if we can figure out a new study routine that works better. I know you can do it. This encouraging, self-compassionate approach is going to motivate him more to study harder and do better on his next exam, whereas the critical, punishing approach will make him feel worthless and like he'll never be able to succeed. And he won't even want to try to do better. And this works the same with ourselves. Remember the exercise I talked about called, how would you treat your friend? When we treat ourselves with kindness and support, when we fail at something or find something about ourselves we don't like, we will be motivated to make changes for the better. We do this because we want to improve, not because we feel ashamed and critical and try to punish ourselves for this aspect that we don't like. If you're still not convinced that you should be working on increasing your self-compassion, it also has other health benefits. Research has found that self-compassion is associated with healthy eating behaviors, exercise behavior, smoking cessation, dietary adherence, medical adherence, and in general, seeking more medical care. I'm sure you must be wondering, how can having more self-compassion do all of those things? Well, my friends, the answer lies in what we've already discussed. Self-compassionate people respond to their setbacks and failures with acceptance and kindness. They view their mistakes as something everyone experiences rather than being consumed with negative feelings and stress. Specifically, when it comes to these many health behaviors, self-compassionate responses help to continue these practices by lessening the negative emotions that can come up when setbacks and goals happen. Say you are trying to exercise five times a week, 
and one week you missed two days. Instead of beating yourself up about it, you instead be kind and forgiving to yourself. You acknowledge that you're human and you are doing your best. As we can see from these examples, self-compassion can increase the chances of us taking care of our physical health, which will in turn lead us to have better mental health. Speaking of mental health, let's talk about how self-compassion can reduce stress levels. As a university student, and to any who may be listening, I'm sure many of us often experience feeling the stress overload at the point of nearing the end of the semester. Self-compassionate thoughts can help decrease the stress. A study conducted by researchers last year found that self-compassionate people reported lower stress levels, more frequent health behaviors, and overall better physical health. How did they do this? They filled out surveys about self-compassion, perceived stress, and health behaviors, and found that individuals who reported higher self-compassion levels were also seen to have lower perceived stress and increased health behaviors. These positive links with increased self-compassion show us how important it is that we practice it. So now that we know this, how do we increase self-compassion so we can also have all these awesome things? Now that we know the basics of what self-compassion is and how beneficial it is to us, I'm sure by now you're probably wondering what you can do to improve self-compassion. The answer? Well, not the only answer, but the research points to mindfulness training. Mindfulness training can help you to develop skills to effectively cope with the countless issues that cause us distress or harm on a regular basis. Mindfulness training is easier to do than you think. If you practice any kind of art or play music, you are already doing it without knowing. When doing these activities, you become fully consumed in them and lose track of the world around you. You're only focused on the present moment. Mindfulness focuses on being intensely aware of what you're sensing and feeling in the moment without judgment or explanation. This can involve breathing methods, guided imagery, and other practices to relax the body, mind, and to reduce stress, and to increase self-compassion. You may be thinking to yourself, are you kidding me? I don't have enough time to do these mindfulness exercises. Well, lucky for you, there are a few simple ways to practice mindfulness on the go, such as paying attention to the world around you a little closer than you usually do. For example, putting your phone away while you're walking down the street, living in the moment by really noticing what's going on around you with no distractions, as well as accepting yourself and focusing on your breathing. I find these to be especially helpful if I'm extra stressed out or overwhelmed while I'm in the middle of studying or writing a paper. Taking a moment to recenter and do some deep breathing can make the world of difference. Remember my friend Maggie? Well, as we learned from her, she had to take that full day to recover from her ridiculously busy week. Sometimes I lose sight of what is important too and focus too much on schoolwork, and that's okay. If we do learn to take these mini breaks and try to practice these mindfulness exercises, they can make a big difference. Maggie, if you're listening, I hope you've taken a study break today, but if not, this is your reminder to take a break. Now that we've learned about lots of the benefits of self-compassion and where it came from, have you wondered about the difference between men and women? 
Let's find out. Another important thing to know about self-compassion is that it differs between men and women. Research only discusses the genders men and women, no others currently. As most of us probably know, there is a lot of stigma surrounding mental health and seeking the help we need. This is particularly relevant to men. The reason for this is because of traditional masculinity ideologies, mainly based on outdated and old-fashioned sexist beliefs about men. These ideologies promote self-reliance and discourage men from seeking help. It's very unfortunate these ideas about masculinity still exist, since as the research states, they're outdated and old-fashioned. Some traits that are associated with the self-stigma men experience are fear of emotions, shame proneness, and are linked to male gender role stress. Being self-compassionate for men has been found to reduce rumination, which is basically intrusive thoughts, defensiveness, and decrease the self-stigma. Another study from 2019 found that college-aged men do not seek psychological help, in part because of the masculine gender role socialization that may promote self-stigma of seeking help. The study also found that lower levels of self-compassion was a negative predictor for self-stigma. Overall, it was found that low levels of self-compassion in men meant they were less likely to seek help when they needed it, whereas high levels of self-compassion meant they were more likely to get help if they need it, which is, yet again, another good reason to practice self-compassion. Fortunately for men, they commonly report having higher self-compassionate levels than women. A study from Bluth and colleagues in 2017 examined self-compassion levels in adolescents. Older girls in grades 7 to 12 had the lowest levels of self-compassion, compared to the oldest male group and the younger male and female groups. This appeared to happen because as girls get older and reach their older adolescent years, there are often declines in emotional well-being and anxiety and depression are just starting to emerge at all-time highs. Self-compassion has been very effective as a protective measure against negative emotions for both adults and adolescents. Since the results of this study seem to be so important, I think it's also important to note that children should be taught about mindfulness and self-compassion at an early age. If we put these preventative measures in place starting early, it could greatly decrease the negative emotional states and maybe even help with the increasing mental health issues we see every day. That being said, we can't just get rid of mental illness with self-compassion. But in a book about burnout, The Secret to Completing the Stress Cycle by Emily and Amelia Nagoski, they talk about how important it is to be kind to yourself, and this is how they tell us we should do it. If you've never read this book, Burnout, I recommend it a thousand times. It has changed my life in more ways than one. An important thing the Nagoskis talk about in one chapter about self-compassion is the concept of a mad woman. They explain how everyone has a mad woman, or man, or person, and that they are different for everyone. Like a shadow taunting you and following you around, maybe the version of you that you wish you were, the criticizing, guilt-ridden voice always in the back of your mind. My mad woman is always telling me that I can do better, that I can do more, I shouldn't be tired, and I should never fail. But as human beings, 
we are prone to all of these things. And we need to get important things like rest so we can fully function like our madwoman tells us we need to. The Nagoskis explain that the opposite of our self-criticizing, toxic perfectionism is having self-compassion. Not only is self-compassion good for you, but not being self-compassionate is harmful to you, as we've talked about earlier. The Nagoskis talk about the important topic of having self-compassion while struggling with mental health issues and mental illness. It can be a lot harder to love yourself if you have a biological imbalance in your brain that thinks that isn't possible. So, they recommend starting by showing loving kindness to others, your closest friends, your family, or it could even just be someone on the street. This can be a good start to practicing how to be generally compassionate, and eventually it will start to translate to yourself as well. With this all being said, self-compassion is hard and it will take work to get there, if it isn't something that comes easily to you. It's not going to happen overnight, and that's okay. We have to work hard to love ourselves, which sounds silly, but it is so true. I believe my self-compassionate journey started when I started researching this topic. It has always been something I struggle with. But learning about it, talking to others about it, and being self-compassionate to others is so important, and we can do it. It will just take some time. As we near the end of this episode, I want to ask each of you listening to take a couple of minutes when this is over and think about how you will start or continue on your self-compassion journey. We've learned about all of the amazing benefits of self-compassion on this episode, how we can increase it, how our mad person makes that so much harder, and that it all starts with you and how you treat yourself and the people closest to you. We have to relearn society's standards of what being a successful person looks like and we need self-compassion to do this. But this is so hard and I often find myself slipping up. It's so easy to constantly criticize ourselves when we feel inadequate, but having some self-compassion can make a huge difference and help us move in the right direction. Thank you everyone for listening. Until next time. This is Fine, a podcast about stress, burnout, and resilience was created by students at Mount Allison University. The students created each episode as part of a fourth-year psychology class called Stress, Burnout, and Resilience, taught by me, Dr. Lisa Dawn Hamilton. There's a link in the show notes to access the full script with references. You can also go to mta.ca slash psychology and click on the This Is Fine podcast link. Episodes were recorded at the CHMA studios in Sackville, New Brunswick, or over the internet when that wasn't possible. Script assistance, podcast basics, and training were provided by Matt Tunnicliffe. Music and audio production by Jeremy Dahl at palebluedotstudios. Thanks for listening and for supporting these students' foray into the world of podcasting.